Okay. Well, hello, and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I'll be your host for this interview. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University and also maintain a private practice of chiropractic in Eaton, Ohio at Essence of Wellness Chiropractic Center. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. My goals for producing these research interviews are to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research. Dissemination of research findings is an important part of the research process. Publicizing these interviews passes on the benefits of chiropractic research to other researchers, chiropractors in practice, as well as practitioners from other disciplines and the wider community. Another goal is to encourage collaboration of researchers to promote future high-quality chiropractic research. And lastly, I'd like to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these interviews possible. Well, let's get on with today's show, and today I'm really excited to interview Dr. Cheryl Hawk. Dr. Cheryl Hawk is an author of over 100 publications in peer-reviewed scientific journals. She has designed and taught courses on wellness and health promotion to health profession students and in postgraduate education. She has also collaborated on the design and implementation of an online wellness certification program for health professionals with Dr. Will Evans and Michael Perko, offered by the National Wellness Institute. She received her Doctor of Chiropractic degree in 1976 from the National University of Health Sciences and practiced full-time for 12 years. In 1991, she earned a PhD in preventive medicine from the University of Iowa and also became a certified health education specialist. She is author with Dr. Will Evans of Health Promotion and Wellness, an evidence-based guide to clinical preventive services. She is currently co-chair of the research working group of the Academic Consortium for Complementary and Alternative Healthcare. She has been named Researcher of the Year by both the American Chiropractic Association and the Foundation for Chiropractic Education and Research. Her areas of research uh, are health promotion and prevention, practice-based research, and health services research. And Dr. Hawk is also working on two upcoming books, Evidence-Based Chiropractic Practice and Careers in Chiropractic. Although they won't be published until 2017, there's never really been anything like this for chiropractic in the past. This will be two entire volumes written not for chiropractors, but for potential patients, other providers, and potential chiropractic students. I look forward to talking about these books and some of your recent research during this interview. So, Dr. Hawk, thank you so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, well, why don't you go ahead with your interview question? Sure. So, Dr. Hawk, can you tell us how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor in the first place? Oh, I think it's kind of a long, winding story, which is probably not of interest to anyone. So, why don't we just get that one and go on from there? <laughs> Well, I'm interested. <laughs> because no, no, one, no one cares how I became a chiropractor. That was 40 years ago. <laughs> so. Okay. Um, so now you practiced for 
12 years uh, full-time in practice. And were you in solo practice or a group practice? What? Uh, yes. yes I, I, well, first I practiced with uh, psychotherapists. I did the body work when I was first graduated, when I was in Chicago. So that was very interesting to be in an interdisciplinary practice right off the bat. You know, I'd never done anything before. So that was really interesting. And then I uh, moved to Berkeley, California, because I figured I had to be somewhere. I was so alternative. I figured that was the only place I could stand to be. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and that was in 1977. So I, had a, uh, I was offered an interdisciplinary practice position at that time, but I decided to just practice in my home, and so I had a small practice in my home, and uh, I was the only woman chiropractor in Berkeley at the time, so it was very easy to get a practice started because a, a lot of women wanted a woman chiropractor. So that was easy to do, and uh, when I had my daughter, which I had a home birth, and then I could go back in practice because she was just in the next room sleeping. So. It was very easy to have a baby and have an office in the home. Oh, that's really fantastic. So that was what I did all those, yeah, all those many years ago. Uh, that's probably not possible anymore, but, but it was back then. And, and I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I had the home birth and, uh, you know, did all that. But then uh, when I moved back to Cedar Rapids, uh, Iowa, I realized that the people in Iowa basically wanted somebody to crack their neck and let them go back to work. And I really wasn't interested in that kind of practice. I was interested in a more holistic approach. And I'd always done a wellness practice and health promotion and lifestyle modification and all that. So I wound up uh, teaching nutrition in a community college. And then I went to University of Iowa in their preventive medicine department because I was interested in epidemiology and wound up getting a Ph.D. in preventive medicine and then working as a research scientist at University of Iowa for a while until uh, I got a position at Palmer, and I was at Palmer for 10 years, and I've been uh, in chiropractic education ever since. So I'm curious then, what, what was it about uh, being in practice for that long and then deciding, you know what, I want to go back to school and get a Ph.D.? Well, a couple things. One thing is that even though I, I really enjoyed working with patients, I wanted to have a bigger impact than you can do with one person at a time, I felt like. You know, I was interested in epidemiology, which of course is large populations. I was interested in the community, uh, community interventions. And that was actually what my PhD, uh, my doctoral thesis was about, was uh, designing and implementing and then evaluating community-based health education programs. So that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do things at a broader level than the individual. It just suited me. I also like the intellectual challenge of uh, graduate school. I'm, I'm good at academics, and I liked academics. So I never thought had thought about research. I mean, I went into preventive medicine just because I was interested in epidemiology, which I knew was important from all I knew about nutrition. And then I just kind of got hooked on the academic uh, side of things and stayed with it. 
And, you know, I never realized I'd be painting myself into a corner by being involved in research. But, you know, within chiropractic, it's, it's a pretty much of a, if you're in research, people think you can't do anything else. Like you can't talk to people and you can't practice. <laughs> so, <laughs> and you definitely don't know anything about teaching or anything else. It's, it's a very odd model that we have developed in chiropractic in a, in a regular conventional university, faculty are expected to teach and do research and do service. And if they're clinical, then they're expected to also practice. But that's never been the model in the chiropractic colleges. You know, they, they have the research people are completely separate in, in most places. So hopefully we're kind of moving away from that model now. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm at a the traditional university, Miami University, and I have a clinical position. And you're right, that's that's exactly what it is. It's teaching, research, and service. So Dr. Hawk, you have authored over 100 publications as well as numerous book chapters and several books, including the upcoming books that I mentioned in the intro. And you are editor-in-chief of the journal Topics in Integrative Healthcare. So with your background in uh, preventive medicine, the publications that you've done, what what do you see are the significant scientific questions regarding chiropractic care uh, as you see them? Um, I don't know about the questions. It, what I've always been interested in has been in in really empowering people to take charge of their health and adopt a healthy lifestyle. And I see chiropractic as being instrumental in that. So, uh, you know, mine is probably more of a, it's a, a health promotion and disease prevention point of view. So I've been most interested in that, and, and I've never really thought that research should be something that's totally separate from everything else. So I generally have been doing sort of a bunch of things all at once. Like, for example, I feel like one thing that was actually significant that I feel that I've accomplished in my career was actually getting wellness competencies written into the National Board of Chiropractic Examiners and to the Council on Chiropractic Education. So, you know, that wasn't a research question. It was more of a, you know, I'm more interested in program uh, design and program implementation and evaluation. So not so much what you think of as research, but you know, my whole doctoral thesis was about de developing programs and implementing them. So it kind of uh, cuts across several disciplines. So uh, when I was working a lot with the chiropractic healthcare section of the American Public Health Association, I headed a task force on getting the national board to get away from worms and germs and, you know, get some epidemiology and health promotion in to the National Board questions, and at the same time to get the CCE to develop wellness competencies, which I actually wound up writing, and, and they did get adopted, and the National Board did change the weighting of the uh, public health component, so it did have health promotion and epidemiology in it, and uh, they actually use uh, Dr. Evans in my book as as one of their references, you know, for those questions. So, you know, I felt like that was a, an accomplishment to get that to actually happen, and guess how long it took to do that. Just to change the weighting 
and to get these competencies into the CCE? Well, how long do you think it took us to do that? I don't know, but that's a huge, huge accomplishment. Uh, wellness is, I mean, I'm just really excited to keep talking about this because wellness is, uh, in my mind, I mean, that's why I, one of the reasons I got into chiropractic care, I think I share a lot of the same values that you do. Um, and I, I don't know how long it took. How long did it take? 10 years. Wow. <laughs> and just to change a few questions and, and to have the competencies, but they're now in there. And so all the colleges technically do have to teach something about health promotion and disease prevention and not just saying get adjusted every week for the rest of your life. You know, that that's, that's not wellness. Right. And then we do have uh, a best practices document. NCMIC has been very good about uh, they funded our best practices in pediatrics, geriatrics, and wellness. And so we do have a consensus uh, set of recommendations for chiropractic care for health promotion and wellness. Yeah, that's fantastic. And actually, so, a couple of those have just come out here in 2016, which I'd like to talk about uh, coming up very soon. So, we'll go right yeah, ahead. Yeah, that's great. So, um, I would like to talk about, uh, and actually, pretty much most of these things are papers that have just come out in the last few years. But the first one uh, that I'd like to talk about would be uh, a paper on chiropractic dizziness and balance. And this was uh, published in uh, Journal of Evidence-Based uh, Complementary and Alternative Medicine here in 2016. And... Oh, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So the... I was just going to give some background for people listening about the paper and uh, I'm assuming why you did the paper, but uh, some studies suggest that chiropractic care specifically manipulation may be helpful in treating balance disorders and cervicogenic dizziness. And the goal of the paper was to explore the role of chiropractic in the treatment of dizziness or balance disorders by analyzing National Health Interview uh, uh, Survey. And basically, uh, in the study, you found that balance or dizziness problems were reported by 11% of the respondents. The Reported prevalence was 35% for those age 65 or older. And you found that a relatively small proportion, 4.2%, sought chiropractic care for these issues, balance and dizziness. And those who did were likely to report that it helped. And I'd like to talk about some of the odds ratios because I think this is an important part of the paper. And, and chiropractors generally don't, in my experience don't have a good understanding or a good handle on what odds ratios mean. So should I talk about the percentages or uh, would you like to to take it over from here? Um, I can tell you uh, one thing. I think you might be interested in something that seems a little tangential, but it's kind of a backstory for this Jebcam issue, which what we, as of this month, they have an entire issue dedicated to chiropractic research. Jebcam does. And I, I just want to tell you about how that happened, is that our pediatrics consensus, you know, the best practices for pediatrics, what happened was a medical doctor who's a pediatrician uh, who was in charge of uh, Medicaid in, I forget what state it was, but um, he saw that and he was so impressed with our statement about pediatrics. For one thing, he got one over to chiropractic care for children. And then he also mentioned to a friend of his who is the editor of JebCam that 
chiropractic had some interesting research going on and that they should have a dedicated issue. So I became, along with Jay Greenstein, uh, we became guest editors for that issue. And we, uh, I, you know, beat the bushes to get people to submit. But it's a very good journal, but chiropractors just didn't know about it much. We wound up with seven articles in that issue and this one on dizziness and balance that I did with, with uh, Harrison Deton, uh is one of them. But four of the articles were on pediatric topics. And so it wound up being a whole issue, which you can watch for it. It should be coming out if it's not out already. It's a print journal. So anyway, that's the backstory to that. And then about the dizziness and balance, uh, Deton and I and generally Will Evans, we've, we've done a number of, uh, analyses of National Health Interview Survey data. We got one published in Preventive Medicine, which I think is one of the, probably the peak of my career was getting that article published in Preventive Medicine. This one, uh, I've had a longstanding interest in, in uh, fall prevention for older adults and that chiropractic has a role in this. And so this was just like a peripheral thing. Uh, Harrison said we should look at busyness and balance in the National Health Interview Survey. So we thought it would be interesting to do. And since he's a, an extremely skilled biostatistician, especially with secondary data sets like this, we were able to do it because Harrison is so good with secondary data sets. And so it was a very small study. It was a brief report. But we just thought it was intriguing, and it just added a little bit to the evidence base. If you look at those odds ratios, even though there's some really big odds ratios, like 13.78, uh, you won't see in, in what you've got written down here, the confidence intervals are extremely wide because we had a small, small sample. So, you know, this is, you can't put too much stock in this, but I think it's intriguing is the best we can say about this just because the sample within the National Health Interview Survey was so small because very few people go to a chiropractor for dizziness. But the ones who do reported being helped quite a lot. So yeah, that's that's. But really that's I, I wouldn't put yeah I wouldn't put too much into this because it was a very it was a brief report. We didn't want to make a huge deal of it, but we thought it was intriguing and just adds a little bit to the evidence base that chiropractic can be used for more than pain management. Absolutely, absolutely. Plus, uh, I think it will serve as a springboard for future studies to examine this in some more detail. If anyone can get funding for anything other than pain management, <laughs> which is virtually impossible. You're right. You're right. That's a, you know, it's just it's just yeah, it's, it's just about impossible. You have to look at pain management, or you're not going to get anybody to give you any money. Well, I think this is where we need the chiropractic profession to step up, right? Well, and I've got to say, uh, you know, it used to be FCER, but, and now uh, NCMIC has been helpful. They, uh, well, FCER actually funded, I, I had the last study they funded, I believe, <laughs> before they, they uh, retired, and it was on uh, balance and dizziness in, in older adults. We had a pilot study. Okay. So, and, and now NCMIC has been very good about funding some pilot studies. I mean, the idea is fund the pilot study, and then hopefully the investigators can go on to getting larger amounts of funding from the government or wherever they can get it. Got it. Got it. 
Well, let's keep going with some other papers here. Another one that you had published, uh, and this was a, a few years back now, uh, was on chiropractic care for health promotion. I know this is a keen interest for you. And so that was in 2012. After reading that, I just wanted to get your thoughts and hear you talk about the difference between uh, maintenance care and wellness care and why we should make a distinction. Basically, what what should chiropractors know about wellness care and health promotion? Oh, okay. Oh, that was probably the best practices paper that you're referring to there. Yes. If it was JMPT. Yeah, it was, and that was, again, funded by NCMIC. And it was a consensus statement. And so we, and then a, a previous paper, we had come up with a few definitions. So it's really important that we do define these terms. For one thing, in, in the payment arena, you can't get paid for maintenance care. So basically, we maintenance care is probably not a good term to even use. Then, we, then the other thing, we wanted to define wellness care because some chiropractors will define wellness care as coming in often to get adjusted. And we wanted to make it clear that that is not wellness care, that wellness care would be advising the patient on lifestyle you know, they may get adjusted. You know, you may be wanting to, uh, you know, check for subclinical problems. They want to be checking, you know, to see if, if they need to be adjusted even though they don't have outright symptoms. They may have something, you know, like stiffness and my, minor pain or something like that. But you can't call it wellness care if all you do is adjust the patient and you don't talk to them about lifestyle. Because wellness is something a patient pursues for him or herself. Wellness isn't something you deliver. You know, you can give advice on lifestyle that will help the patient pursue their their wellness process. So we just want to make that distinction. And then maintenance care, you know, what, what we tried to say is that if, for instance, if a person has chronic pain, then you should call it chronic pain management. You know, that's what people are taking opioids for is chronic pain management. Why couldn't they be getting adjusted, you know, frequently instead of taking medication every day? But right now, you can't, you can't be on a course of chronic pain management. You have to keep justifying why that person still needs to be getting chiropractic treatment, even though no one minds that they're taking medication for pain all the time. So we are trying to say, we, you know, we need to talk about chronic pain management. That chronic pain is something that you don't cure with six visits. Exactly. You know, so we just, we, we have to get people thinking about, you know, the chiropractic isn't something that you, you're done in six visits, and if you had low back pain for the past 20 years, you go to a chiropractor six times, and if you're not done, then chiropractic doesn't work. But if you were given an analgesic and when you stop taking it, your symptoms come back, would somebody say that the analgesic didn't work? <laughs> you know, so it, <laughs> we have to, we, you know, it, it's the way people think about it that for the whole chronic pain management thing, which uh, it, it's just, it's kind of doing a tap dance for having people have their insurance cover it. Totally, because they totally. do need ongoing management with chronic pain, but they're often not able to get it. Yeah, 
you know, I'm still in practice and I, I hear what you're saying. It's absolutely true. So it's, it's really critical that we make these kinds of distinctions. And I really appreciate that, uh, you and your colleagues have gone to this effort to, to do this for us. And we have a document that we can uh, point to and utilize in these ways. So that's fantastic. I wanted to talk about some of the other guidelines as well. Another one that just came out in 2016 was for chiropractic care for low back pain. And this was the lead author was Dr. Globe. This was also published in JMPT and it was a best practice update to my understanding, uh, for the management, chiropractic management of low back pain. And the guide summarized recommendations throughout the continuum of care from acute to chronic and offers the chiropractic profession and other stakeholders an up-to-date and evidence-based practice, essentially, for treating patients with low back pain. So there's a, a ton of information in these guidelines. Having gone through and being a part of the the committee on this guideline, what did you see as the differences between uh, several years ago when you were going through the guidelines and, and the new information that has come out recently? In other words, what got into the guidelines this time that, that wasn't there before? Well, you know, the interesting thing is the, the main reason we needed to update it is the National Guideline Clearinghouse throws your guideline out if it's not based on a systematic review that's less than five years old. So our previous one had just run out. Okay. So we had to we had to update the systematic review, which is a, an enormously difficult process. But we needed to do that, even though you know in the literature that we found, there's there's probably some more safety literature. I mean, right now we're in the midst of doing the same thing with our geriatrics best practice and updating it because the literature review was out of date. And so you can't have a best practices document or a guideline that's older than five years. Just be, Even though the evidence may not show anything new, it, it might. You know, you have to examine it to see. So there wasn't really all that much that was new in terms of low back pain because, you know, we've, there's been so much research and there was a lot more. But it wasn't anything that significantly altered the guideline. But what we did do is go through the consensus process again with experts in the field, you know, mostly, uh, uh, mostly practitioners uh, from different disciplines. They weren't all chiropractors. And made sure that we got consensus on the statements. And so we, you know, we refined it from before, but it didn't substantially change. But we did make sure we did a very careful systematic review of the literature. So in case there was anything that would significantly change things, we would incorporate it. But there was not anything real big that had happened. So it's basically, uh, and we did combine that we had one on acute, one on chronic. We put those together with a paper that had algorithms. So we put everything from other earlier papers together so it's all in one place. And this is uh, what I was talking to you earlier before we were on the call about knowledge translation. Clinical practice guidelines are one of the key features of knowledge translation because you can have all the systematic reviews in the world, but if practitioners aren't using them, if they're not using what's in them, then you know, you're not translating that information into actual practice. 
So with the clinical practice guideline, kind of you want to take the information from the systematic reviews and put it into practical terms, like what does this mean in practice? And then hopefully you get enough buy-in, which if you can disseminate this and people actually use it, that the research gets put into practice. And that's the whole purpose. And that's a big thing that clinical practice guidelines do. Yeah, can we explore that topic on knowledge translation a little bit more? Uh, what are the what are some ways that we can get this information to the pra- practitioners? Well, and that's that's the tricky thing. Now, uh, are you familiar with the Council on Chiropractic Guidelines and Practice Parameters? Yes. Okay, because I'm the chair of the Scientific Commission, so the Scientific Commission is you know, the research people who, you know, we've helped, we find the research and the evidence and, you know, help with that. And then the CCGPP, it, one of the things they do is try to disseminate this and, you know, help practitioners access the evidence. We have uh, the Rapid Response Resource Center where we annually update the research. We just look at systematic reviews and large cohort studies on a a bunch of different topics, and we have it summarized with just like one sentence, real, real short, and then we have live links to either the abstract or the full text article to try to make it easy for practitioners to access the newest research. So that's one thing. We, We want them to get in touch with it to be able to access the research. And then we have uh, some of the CCGPP board members will do seminars, you know, and talk about our clinical practice guideline and, you know, try to operationalize it and, and through actual webinars or, or in-person seminars, explain it and, and help people actually start to use it. And what you're doing is, is another kind of knowledge translation is you're you know, you're getting this information about research out to as many people as you can. Yeah, great. Uh, now, um, maybe I can get those links from you uh, or find them and uh, put them in the um, yeah. in the information for people to access after. That would be awesome. I'd love that. Yes, I w- I'll do that. Another thing CCGPP does is originally it was formed by the Congress of Chiropractic State Associations. So we've got connections with all the state associations. So that really kind of helps the representatives on the board from all the state associations. So, you know, we really, it's, it's a practitioner-run organization. And that makes, you know, that really helps get that connection. It's practitioners who really know how important research is. And, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out the best ways to get that out to the field doctors so that they can use it to improve their practice and help their patients more. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about another best practice uh, guideline, and that is best practices for chiropractic care of children. And that was uh, another update, a consensus update, and that was published, I think it's actually still in early publication in JMPT, but I was able to get a copy of it. So uh, the purpose of that project was to update the 2009 recommendations on practices for chiropractic care of children. And it looked like there were two major uh, questions that you had in the paper. One was the systematic review part. 
which try to answer the questions, uh, what is the effectiveness of chiropractic care, including spinal manipulation for conditions experienced by children less than 18 years of age, and what are the adverse events associated with chiropractic care, including spinal manipulation, again, for children less than 18 years of age. So these are obviously really at the heart of evidence-based practice and, and children. The results indicated that serious adverse events are rare in children, and there were no deaths that have been associated with chiropractic care. I know there have been some case studies and, and shown uh, some deaths, I believe, with other types of practitioners, but, but none apparently with uh, chiropractors. And there were three randomized trials uh, from a total of 21 studies included, and all were for different conditions. And overall, there was limited support in terms of any high-quality studies for uh, asthma, colic, nocturnal enuresis, and respiratory disease. So from your perspective, what are some of the important issues that came about during the consensus and the consensus update that you see for pediatric chiropractic research and, and practice? Okay, well, several things here. Now, remember, I, I mentioned when we were talking about uh, GEMCAM, how our, our first pediatric best practices guideline, which, again, was funded by NCMIC, uh, it had it had it was really helpful to the profession, especially for people outside the profession, because they would read that, and pediatricians in particular, they they would say, well, you know, the chiropractors are being responsible, they're evidence based, they're patient centered, you know, they're making a set of recommendations to ensure the safety of their patients, and it did us a lot of good, and in fact, it changed some policy. There was, uh, I think, a, a large insurance carrier who had had a policy against chiropractors treating children, but now adopted our practices as their guideline for treating children. So, you know, they reversed their policy. So it, it can have huge policy implications. Just saying that, you know, we are doing our best to use the evidence and to ensure the safety of our patients. You know, we're looking into it carefully, and I think that's that's the thing that's important is to take a responsible position, and that's why we do a consensus, we, because the evidence, from this you can see clearly there's not enough evidence on effectiveness. We just don't have enough. There's not, gonna, there's not enough research money to put into that type of thing. So what we can do in the meantime is we have a formal consensus, which is a lower level of evidence, but it is a level of evidence, saying, you know, this is what we recommend as the best way to approach chiropractic care for children in a responsible way. You know, we talk about how you examine the child, you know, how you would modify techniques. And it's good within the profession, but it's also good for people outside the profession to see that we are doing our best to recommend optimal care for children who are patients of chiropractors. So I think that's, that's the whole thing. And as far as the research goes, there's just not any research money out there, you know, so we're going to, I'm sticking with these consensus statements to make sure we do the best we can, you know, and if we're not, not going to have a lot of research. Uh, an, another thing in terms of research, what we could do, uh, which is being done in geriatrics a lot more, is looking at cohort studies. Instead of always 
thinking about jumping into a randomized controlled trial, which is very expensive, and you don't always know the best way to design it. You don't necessarily know what's the best course of treatment. You don't know what's the best subpopulation. You just don't know that. But a cohort study, you can use secondary data. I mean, that's why we've worked with National Health Interview Survey, or like the, the people, uh, for instance, Jim Whedon, uh, and then there's uh, some other people, too, that are looking at Medicare data for older adults. And they've done some really good safety studies that way, looking at, at the safety of chiropractic care by looking at large secondary databases like Medicare. Now, it would be harder to get at with children, but I would think, you know, accessing insurance records, you know, we, we should really be thinking about doing more cohort studies and putting our money into that rather than necessarily jumping into randomized trials of specific conditions. I think we could probably get more bang for the buck with more cohort studies. Yeah, that's a really, really excellent point. And you're right, there have been some fantastic studies coming out recently. I, I well, know. Look at the, look at, um, the, the one on stroke. That was a, co was a case control or a cohort study. I forget now, but. Yeah, case was, control. You know, for years. Yeah, for, for years I was, you know, thinking why are we, we have no cohort studies in chiropractic. For many years we didn't. And, you know, with a background in epidemiology, I was thinking why are we not making more use of cohort studies where we could get a lot of good information. And no one was doing it. Uh, you know, people in chiropractic thought a cohort study was the same thing as a case series. You know, I, they just didn't <laughs> know. But now in, in recent years, we're getting some really good cohort studies because we have more chiropractors trained in epidemiology. And, you know, so they know how to do those. And I think that's extremely helpful. Yeah. It takes a community, right, to, to make all this stuff work. And uh, it, I'm glad well, it everybody's does, on the it, team. And it takes, you know, you, you, it takes more education. It's like in, in the chiropractic colleges, you get epidemiology, you used to get it, just you'd get it like for two minutes in a public health course, and then it was back to worms and germs. So, I, I mean, I've even had, many years ago, I had chiropractors who didn't even know what epidemiology was. And, you know, gradually we've been increasing it, and I've, I've mentored several people who I've sent them to get a master's degree in epidemiology, and they made good careers that way. But we need to understand epidemiology to be using more study designs than just randomized controlled trials. Yeah. Now, I want to make sure that we have uh, some time to talk about uh, some books that you're really passionate about. So can we go ahead and talk about uh, your evidence-based chiropractic practice book and the careers in chiropractic book? Yes, I would like to. I'm, I'm just uh, trying to get all the chapters out of all the people writing them now. Uh, I was actually approached by Prager Publishing to do these books and I didn't know if I wanted to, but it just seemed like such a good idea because they have, they'll have uh, evidence-based practice and careers in, and they've done it for several professions, but they never do it for chiropractic. And there's nothing like that out there because, you know, part of writing the book proposal, because they asked me if I wanted to do it and then said, you know, write us a proposal. And when I looked, mostly all the books that are out there about chiropractic are written for chiropractors. They're just, or there might be like a really, like a little blender uh, paperback that's written for patients. 
but and there was one it's out of print now which uh, Bart Green Claire Johnson and Luce Bortelli did on careers in chiropractic but it's now out of print and it was a paperback and it was it was good but it was years ago so there's nothing you know we all we know that the enrollment in chiropractic college is flat in the United States it's not going up but uh, you know nobody has thought this is one thing I think would should be helpful is is a book about careers in chiropractic and the market for this is they they mostly sell these to libraries so these would be in libraries all around the world because it's an international publisher so I think that could be really helpful for careers in chiropractic and what I wanted to do in that book is is you know present the best of chiropractic you know what chiropractic should be and everything that's you know what's good about it and what the training is like and what are opportunities like right now I'm doing a chapter on interdisciplinary practice and I'm interviewing people that are in interdisciplinary practices and it's just fascinating so you know there's there's so many opportunities that we haven't even fully tapped for careers in chiropractic that I'm hoping this is going to help you know kind of further some of the possibilities out there and yeah, the evidence-based practice that's written for people who might want to go to a chiropractor but haven't or health professionals who might want to refer somebody to a chiropractor but would like to know more about it so it's written it's not written for chiropractors or jargon it's ex- explaining what happens when you go to a chiropractor what's the evidence for different conditions you know that sort of thing so I think that's going to be useful. There's not really a book like that. Dr. Hawk, can we use that as practitioners as like a patient education tool? Is that the idea? Could, although it's $40. I mean, I think their selling price will be $40 a book, which is pretty cheap for a book, but it's not like a giveaway either. Got it, got it. So, and, okay. and they're hardcover, which is nice too. Uh, my other book is a soft cover, and somehow a hardcover is nice. So I think, you know, I do know that I would think the chiropractic colleges might want to use some of them, but I think them going to the libraries is going to be a good thing. And, you know, I don't hope to make any money out of it. You know, you know, it's a labor of love to do these books. It's, it's definitely not a money-making endeavor, but I would like to see these at least in libraries. That's great. Well, uh, I will get your information for these books because I definitely want these at Miami University where I'm at. I am the chiropractic advisor at the university. So uh, all the uh, oh, information good. I could get uh, will be great. And I send uh, future chiropractors to school all the time. <laughs> it's one of the, one of the fun aspects. Uh, well, most fun. It, it's all fun. But it's uh, one of the most pleasant aspects of my job is directing people towards chiropractic education. Great. Well, yeah, I think this will be helpful for that. So yeah, it's, I'll be glad when it's all done. But uh, but it's definitely an interesting, I, you know, it's an interesting project. And I have to thank the publisher for thinking of this. Yeah. And, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think they would have thought of even considering having a, a pair of books on chiropractic evidence-based practice and careers in chiropractic. So that kind of shows that we've progressed. Because it certainly wouldn't have been possible when I first started in practice. Nobody would even imagine such a thing. Yeah, I, I love that. That a mainstream big publisher would want, you know, would they came up with the idea. I didn't pitch it to them. They came up with it on their own. Well, that's pretty telling. I hope you're going to talk a lot it about is, the, the wellness and prevention aspects. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think, and we do have chapters on uh, 
wellness, which Will Evans is writing that chapter. Uh, you know, so we've covered all, all aspects of chiropractic, I think, that we can cover in this. And from the point of view, it's not like isn't it, I happen to tell the authors who are mostly faculty, chiropractic college faculty, you know, you don't need to have 50 references. In fact, you can't have 50 references. <laughs> they don't want it. <laughs> they, I keep having to send it back and say, take out some of these references. We, you know, this has to be readable by an educated layperson, and they don't want to see 50 references. So, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you know, it has to be, yeah, so it's, it has to be factual and correct, but, but not referenced like a scientific article. And they, you can't talk in scientific jargon. So, it's, so it, it should be, you know, so that people, lay people can read it, but educated lay people. Great. Well, Dr. Hawk, this was uh, certainly a pleasure to talk with you today. Um, do you have any uh, concluding remarks you'd like to share uh, with anyone who might be listening to this? Uh, I imagine it's probably a mixture of uh, practitioners, chiropractors in particular, uh, some patients and uh probably other researchers as well listening. Uh, no, I don't think I do. I think you've covered everything really well, and, and thank you for giving me this opportunity. Well, like I said, my pleasure, and uh, you've done some amazing uh, chiropractic work for all of us, and I, I just really appreciate you being a chiropractor and doing what you do. It's uh, fantastic to hear all of the cool stuff you've done. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Okay. Bye for now. Bye.